Welcome to Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name's Andrew, I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Ridge, and we are so excited to have you join us today. So grab your Bible and then your iPad, a notebook, pens, pencils, whatever it is that will help you get the most out of today's sermon, and please enjoy our Sunday message. We're going to be looking at a psalm this morning, and if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to the book of Psalms, uh, chapter 20, nope, 32, chapter 32, book of Psalms, chapter 32. When I was in the second and third year of my undergrad, I lived by myself. I lived alone in a little bachelor basement apartment in the south end of Guelph. It was a little one room, it had a bathroom, and then the kitchen, bedroom, office, and living room was all just one big space. And by big, big is a generous term. It was one space, I should say. One night, I was on my way home from late at uh, some hangout with some friends, and I missed the bus. And the thing with the evening bus schedule is that the buses run only every half an hour at that point instead of every 15 or 20 minutes. So I had a half an hour to kill. And of course, being late and being 20, I realized in that moment I was incredibly hungry. Just so happened, there was a little pizza place right beside the bus stop, the place that I had never been to before, and they were still open. And so I thought, this is great. I'll just go and get myself a slice of pizza while I wait. I remember walking in, and the employee almost looked confused or shocked that I was there, a customer, which should have been the first red flag. But nonetheless, I ordered a slice from the display, and he went uh, and got it for me, and then I went and ate it at the bus stop. Now that pizza, I remember, was overpriced. It was mediocre at best, and it was heated to that sketchy, not quite hot, but also not cold anymore place, which should have been the second red flag. But hey, when you're 20 and you're hungry and it's late and you're waiting for the bus, you don't really care about the red flags. Well, the bus came and I made it home and I went to bed. I remember the next day waking up earlier than expected. I was going to bed very late. I thought I'd have a chance to sleep in. I was very wrong. I woke up with feelings in my stomach that immediately brought about panic and an urgency to get to that one other room that my apartment actually had <laughs> as soon as absolutely possible. I'll spare you the details and just say that one of the reasons I remember that event over 10 years later is because it was the first time that I got sick while living alone without someone to take care of me. I knew that if I wanted ginger ale or plain crackers or anything to calm down the nausea, I would actually have to get up and go and leave my house by myself. Miraculously, though, I didn't need any of those things because rather than the stomach flu, like I feared, upon getting that pizza out of my system, so to speak, I immediately started to feel better. A little bit more sleep and some water, and by midday, I was feeling perfectly back to normal. Sometimes there is suffering in our lives that is more like a stomach flu. We don't really know why it's there. We don't know why it's happening. But we do know it feels terrible. And then sometimes we think it's done and then we get hit again. And while others can comfort us and we can treat the symptoms as much as possible, we know ultimately we have no choice but to just wait it out. But other times, suffering has a cause. We've done something unwise or irresponsible and we brought pain upon ourselves that won't be stopped until we get the source of corruption out of us. 
Today we're going to look at Psalm chapter 32, and it's an interesting psalm because it's a blend of genres. There's aspects of praise to it. There's aspects of thanksgiving, aspects of wisdom literature. And today what we're going to see when we read this psalm is we're going to be reminded that sometimes our sin can be like a piece of sketchy midnight bus stop pizza. It's not satisfying. It's not worth it. And when we keep it inside, it can be messy, sickening, and painful. But thankfully, we're not going to stop there today because this psalm ultimately reminds us about the character of the God that we serve and how truly gracious he is despite our continued foolishness. As we read through the text today, we're going to see it laid out in three pairs. We're going to see three principles or realities about God, and then we're going to see each followed by an example of how that reality can or ought to be demonstrated in our life. And to keep it pithy this morning, we're looking at three pairs of C's, okay? We got contentment when we confess, we've got comfort when we call, and we've got cheer when we comply. Three truths about God and his character and our relationship with him, followed by three examples. So let's start by reading this psalm in its entirety this morning. Psalm chapter 32. How blessed is he whose wrongdoing is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is a person whose guilt the Lord does not take into account, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality failed as with the dry heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my guilt. I said, I will confess my wrongdoings to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Certainly in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You keep me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will advise you with my eye upon you. Do not be, do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. The sorrows of the wicked are many, but the one who trusts in the Lord, goodness will surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. This psalm opens with David detailing a reality about God's character by making a fairly generic statement, one that could apply to anyone. And yet, as we see in the following verses, it is clearly coming from his own personal understanding and experience. Let me read verses 1 and 2 again so we can get back at that section in our minds. How blessed is he whose wrongdoing is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is a person whose guilt the Lord does not take into account and in whose spirit there is no deceit. It starts off with this word, blessed, how blessed. And to quote a certain pastor from his sermon on the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, a certain pastor who has read these words here aloud, the word used here for blessed or blessed carries the idea of divine congratulations or approval. 
It's a proclamation, not a possibility. It's a declaration more than a desired result. That is to say here, when David or when Matthew writes about blessedness, how blessed is someone, again, it's a statement of a reality. In this case, blessing, or we might say divine contentment, or even happiness would be a word that we could sub in. It's a reality for those who are forgiven, whose guilt the Lord does not take into account, as he writes here in the text. From a statement like this, we might draw a couple of conclusions. First of all, if you have sin in your life that is hindering your happiness, or your blessedness, or your contentment, Clearly, you need to figure out how to experience the forgiveness offered by God, because this is a reality. So maybe that means confessing sin before him, sin that you've been holding on to. Maybe it means letting go of sins that you've already confessed, but are still clinging to. In fact, David is so intent on his readers experiencing this blessing that he basically repeats the same idea in these words three different times, each with a different word in the Hebrew, reflected in our English as well. So first of all, look again at verse 1. How blessed is he whose wrongdoing, or maybe your version says transgressions. He says the wrongdoing is forgiven, which in the Hebrew literally means carried away, lifted away, as though it's not connected anymore. In the next section, he says the word sin. Sin, which is missing the mark. And it says that that is covered. Imagine it's not there. Imagine the blanket is over top of it. It doesn't exist. It's atoned for. So we have wrongdoing forgiven. We have sin covered. And then we have guilt or iniquity, or your version might say sin again. And it says it's not taken into account. It means it's justified. The, the account is cleared. Our wrongdoings, our sin, our guilt, all of them have been forgiven or can be forgiven. All of them can be covered. All of them can be not taken into account. Now, as one commentator explains, the three words here do not signify three distinct types or kinds of sin because the synonyms overlap. But the psalmist is declaring that the forgiveness of sin of whatever kind, whether against God or man, whether against great, sorry, whether great or small, whether conscientious or inadvertent, whether by omission or commission, the forgiveness is to be found in God. He repeats himself with three different words for sin, three different words for forgiveness, to show us that no matter the sin, forgiveness is found in God. Forgiveness of any kind of sin comes from the Lord. He also makes reference here in verse 2, to the idea of hidden sin, when he says, in whose spirit there is no deceit, which basically means the person who isn't pretending that they can keep their sin hidden from God. Now, to all of this, to this whole concept of sin being forgiven, I'm sure many of us would say, amen. Right? Anyone who has experienced forgiveness from God or even forgiveness from other people knows the feeling of freedom it can bring, the feeling of contentment and blessing that comes when we know that the slate has been wiped clean and that our wrongdoing isn't held against us. I'm sure some of us know the experience of someone telling us that we've been forgiven, but we still don't really believe it and we question it, and we still have that unsettledness in our heart until they prove in some way that they are not holding it against us. And what a moment of relief it is 
That's the same with God. We can know that all times, as the words of 1 John reminded us this morning, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Again, if you haven't had that experience, if you don't know what it is to be truly blessed by the forgiveness of your sins, maybe you don't feel like you're forgivable or that your sins have truly been lifted away, my hope and prayer is that by the end of this passage, that will change today. To help that process, David now switches from this reality about God to the personal, to detailing his own experience and the effects of hidden sin, an example for us to look at. Verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality failed as with the dry heat of summer. I wonder how many of us, when struggling with, let's call it a weighty season, a difficult season of life, I wonder how many of us would even consider the possibility that we might be responsible, that we may have had a hand in causing it, that it could be a direct consequence for our actions. And yet here, that's exactly what David is doing. He is clear that the suffering he is going through, as he said, his body is literally wasting away is a form of discipline from God for unconfessed sin. Now, before we move further, I want to pause quick and make an important acknowledgement to say that I said it so no one can say that I didn't say it. I am not saying that your suffering is always a punishment for sin. In many cases, it is absolutely not a punishment for sin. A great example would be the first few verses of John chapter 9, a story many of us have heard several times at least. It says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? What is this a punishment for? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We know from this example, there is reasons that we suffer beyond consequence. So if you're currently in a season of suffering or coming out of a season of suffering or approaching a season of suffering, I'm not at all saying that you deserve it. I'm not saying that you brought it on yourself. I'm not saying that God is mad at you. What I am saying is that we ought to at least consider the reality that our sin can bring consequences, sometimes earthly, sometimes spiritual. And sometimes those consequences are going to involve discipline, from our loving heavenly Father. Notice that even though Jesus explains the purpose of the man's blindness here so that God will be glorified, he doesn't correct his disciples when their first instinct is to assume that it is a form of discipline. He tells them the reason for it, but he doesn't correct the assumption. In the case of David, he here is facing physical ramifications, a failing vitality, for sin kept within. But thankfully, he lets us into the solution, which is simple and to the point. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my guilt. I said, I will confess my wrongdoings to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Again, he uses the same three words here to add emphasis. Sin, guilt, wrongdoings. 
He brings them out of the darkness and into the light, confessing, acknowledging, no longer hiding. Three words used again. And in response to all of that, we see how quickly it is resolved, how quickly it is removed. You forgave the guilt of my sin. It's a picture of an immediate change, like a massive weight being lifted. lifted. I confessed, you forgave. And as we read above, that forgiveness brings blessed contentment, as David doesn't hold on to his sin, but he moves on from his sin. The reality is that our sin does bring consequences. And confession and forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean that we are going to be immediately free of those consequences. The example I always use is, if you murder someone, I believe that God will forgive you, but you're still probably going to go to jail. There are consequences for our actions. But what we see in David's example here is that the sin that we keep hidden inside of us, that we pretend doesn't exist, that we hide in secret, it weighs us down with guilt, with suffering. And God's forgiveness frees us of that burden that we put on ourselves. Now, I'll put an asterisk next to the word hidden there, because as we all know, there is really no such thing as keeping anything hidden from God. Many of you know about me, I've talked about it here before, that I'm a rule follower. I like to follow rules. I like to do what I'm told most times, especially when the opposite brings a chance of being caught, getting in trouble, um, being embarrassed in some way, shape, or form. And yet we all struggle with temptation and with doing stupid things. Well, another thing about me is that I am a terrible liar. And it just so happens that when I was a kid, the only times I would really try and lie was when I had broken the rules, when I had done something stupid and I wanted to stop from getting in trouble or for being embarrassed. There was the time that I tried to stay inside during recess in an empty classroom, which wasn't allowed, finishing some homework that I forgot to do without permission. Very shortly, a teacher came by and saw me in the room and asked what I was doing in there. Why are you in here? You're not allowed to be in here without supervision. I said quickly, another teacher gave me permission. She asked, which one? I grew up in a very small town. We had maybe 12 teachers on staff. And I said, I don't remember. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> there was that other time when it was cold on the playground, but not too cold. Clearly not cold enough for a tongue to stick to a metal pole, right? There's clearly only one way to prove it to the people who don't believe. When my teacher handed me a popsicle later to soothe my bleeding tongue, she asked why I would do such a thing. I told her, it obviously wasn't intentional, ma'am. I tripped and I fell down and I went, ah! And my tongue stuck to the pole. Yeah. I doubled down on that one when my mom came later too. Totally saved myself from looking like an idiot that day. To God, our sin is as clear and apparent as a kid who sucks at lying. All the way back in Genesis 3, at the beginning of the Bible, we see Adam and Eve thinking they can hide their guilt from God. And yet it's so clear to us as the readers 
but that is not possible. Do you think I got punished less or was embarrassed less because I tried to lie about my stupidity? Of course not. If anything, it was probably worse because not only could they see right through me, but I got to add lying and insulting their intelligence to the list of my wrongdoings. God sees our sin. He knows our hearts. And the longer we keep our guilt to ourselves, the more we are going to suffer. Don't insult the intelligence of our Creator. Don't insult the intelligence of the Almighty, the God that we follow. Confess your sin before Him and embrace the forgiveness and blessed contentment that it brings. The next section of verses builds on the first section. Because our God forgives when we ask, because we receive contentment when we confess, we ought to go to him quickly and regularly before things get out of hand. Verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Certainly, in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. The picture here is a call for God's help when you see the flood waters coming, not when you're already drowning in the waves. We might think about this as keeping a short account with the Lord, not letting our sins pile up until the weight of guilt crushes down upon us. Instead, turning to him often and regularly and quickly. It's almost as though David is saying here, learn from my mistakes. When I kept my sin hidden, it took a toll on my health and my well-being. But it doesn't have to be that way if you simply turn to God. He is like a rock of safety that you can stand on in the midst of a flood. And the waves of guilt don't need to drag you down. Now you might be listening and thinking, Andrew, how do we turn to God before suffering comes if we don't know that suffering is coming? Well, one way is to keep that regular open communication with God, seeking his help and care in everything. But again, remember the context of what is being written here. Remember that this section comes on the tales of the first, that suffering, the waves and the flood that is referred to here, is relating to our own sin, not so different than the waves of the great flood that were also a judgment for sin. It's suffering that we've brought on ourselves by doing wrong and not seeking God's forgiveness. The reality is, is that God is ready to comfort us when we call. As with confession and contentment, often if we aren't experiencing God's comfort, it is because we aren't calling on him. We're not turning to him as soon as we should be leaving prayer as a last resort rather than the absolute first step that we should take. Now, giving another example from his own experience for this principle, David writes verse 7. You are my hiding place. You keep me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. This is the God that he knows. One who disciplines? Sure but also one who protects, who keeps him from trouble, who delivers him. He talks about God as his hiding place. We remember the story of David hiding in the cave from Saul who was trying to kill him. God is his hiding place. One commentator writes, while David previously was hiding from God, here he is reminding us to hide in God. 
that God is our safety in the midst of trouble, especially the trouble that we bring on ourselves. David, inspired by the Spirit to write these words, doesn't want his readers to wait until the storms of life come to seek God's deliverance. For us, that means it's not about waiting to see if there will be consequences for our actions before we confess and seek out God's help. We call upon God. We keep a short account with him because it's the right thing to do. Because whether we're experiencing consequential suffering or not, unconfessed sin in our life affects our fellowship and our relationship with God and with others. And it can stand in the way of the comfort and the contentment that he is offering to us. When I was a kid, which as a side note, I don't know how I landed on so many Andrew was an idiot stories this morning, but you're really getting a look behind the curtain today. So here's another one. When I was a kid, there was a period of time where my parents had a rule where I wasn't allowed to borrow anything from any other kid. This was because I once borrowed a toy from someone else and it mysteriously went missing and I didn't get to return it. So I wasn't allowed to borrow anything anymore. But this one time at school, there was another kid who had a toy that I thought was really cool. And he said I could borrow it for the night to play for it, to play with it and just bring it back tomorrow. I thought I could get away with it. So I got to play with it a little bit on the bus on the drive home. But then I quickly knew that I had to keep it a secret. And so I hid it at the bottom of my backpack under some crumpled papers, and I walked inside. And as soon as I had a moment, I snuck it from my backpack to my pocket, and as soon as I could, I ran to my room and stuck it from my pocket to the bottom of my sock drawer. And then I spent the whole evening not playing with it, not enjoying it, and honestly, just so nervous that I was going to get busted for breaking a rule. So not only did I do something wrong, but by trying to keep it a secret, I brought fear, I brought anxiety and anguish on myself, suffering in silence all night long. And then eventually suffering loudly when my mom happened to do laundry that night and found the toy in my drawer, and I got busted anyways. God is not our enemy. Does he sometimes discipline us for our sin? Absolutely. Does he sometimes allow us to sit in the fear and the despair that we have generated for ourselves as we desperately try and keep our sins a secret? Yeah, you bet. But it doesn't have to be that way. He is waiting to rescue us from the messes that we make to give us comfort when we call to him. Now, I said at the beginning that we were going to be looking at three pairs of C's. Contentment when we confess, comfort when we call, and cheer when we comply. But before we get to that final pair, we do have a brief little interlude in verse 8, which is like a bonus pair of C's. It's character confirmation in verse 8. Let me read it. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will advise you with my eye upon you. Now, there's some differing opinions on this verse, given that its tone shifts so significantly back to the first-person perspective. But the most likely explanation is that this is David, still inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing from the perspective of God, writing in the voice of God. When he says, I will instruct you, this is God talking to those who would read. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will advise you with my eye upon you. 
And this is a way that he is confirming God's character. He's affirming everything that he's explained so far and preparing us for what will follow in the final section. That is to say, it's all because of who God is that we even have hope for contentment, for comfort, and for cheer. Again here, he uses three different synonyms to draw emphasis. He says, instruct, teach, advise, emphasizing God's loving care, but also his correction. We all know from experience and many teachers in this room as well, teaching is not just telling people they got things right even when they got it wrong. Teaching involves correction and observance and encouraging, and that is what God is offering. We aren't left to our own. God wants to teach us, to instruct us, to advise us in all of these things while watching us closely so he can correct us. And we could argue that's exactly what he's doing by inspiring David to write these words. He is teaching us with his eye upon us. So character confirmed. Let's move to this final pair of C's. Cheer when we comply. Because this final section of verses shifts away from the sin that we've already committed and instead onto avoiding those same sins in the future. Really, it's a section about willful obedience and the rewards that come along with it. <coughs> Pardon me. Verse 9. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near you. In other words, don't be stubborn. Don't be like a mule that needs a physical piece of metal, a bit in its mouth, to direct its movement. Just do what you're told. Don't make God drag you over. Come to him of your own volition. Be obedient willingly, not because you're forced, not because you're coerced, or because you're afraid of the consequences, but because you know and trust the character of the God you serve. Why? Verse 10. The sorrows of the wicked are many, but the one who trusts in the Lord, goodness will surround him. There is reward for trusting in God and being obedient to him. Some of it we may see in this life, and some of it we will see for sure in the life to come. And one such reward is shown in the final verse, where David shifts away from an example in his own personal life and onto another more generic example that is available to anyone and ought to be our response in verse 11. He says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. One of the rewards for willingly obeying and trusting in God is joy. Supernatural, undefinable, unexplainable joy. It's cheer when we comply. And again, this section is not isolated from the other two. It's because of what we've been reminded about, about God's character, the way that he forgives and blesses, the way he rescues us when we cry out to him, the way he teaches us with a watchful eye. It's because of those things that we can be filled with joy as we serve him, as we obey him, as we do what we ought to do. Not just because we're afraid of getting in trouble. Now remember here, it's willful obedience. Again, because we want to. 
It's kind of like the fact that we can still experience joy in giving to the church, even though it's mostly digital now and no one can see us dropping those hundos in the offering plate. It's the joy that I imagine certain people in this congregation felt when during the pandemic, when everything was closed, they came in and painted and renovated a bunch of our classrooms and our nursery, even though most people in this room will never know who it was that did those renovations. They still experience the joy of the Lord in serving him. It's the joy that can come from doing what is right, saying no to temptation, not because there's fear of being caught, but because that is what God wants us to do and because he is always watching as a caring, loving, correcting teacher with his eye upon us. As we move towards the end of our time today, the application is really simple. Three C's followed by three C's. The application is confess, call, and comply and experience contentment, comfort, and cheer. If we want to get really practical, I think these three pairs of C's make an excellent addition to our daily quiet time with the Lord. We can always, in our prayer, add in confession. Confess. Keep a short account with the Lord. Don't let your sin linger. Don't let it pile up, but admit it to the one who knows about it anyways. And as you do... Experience that contentment. Experience the blessing that comes with knowing that your sins are forgiven. Remind yourself of that truth that we read about in 1 John, that he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Experience that contentment. In your prayer, call. Call out. Seek out God's wisdom. Seek out his strength. Seek out his protection. When the storms of life come, particularly those of our own consequence, Remember that he is the one that our help comes from. We may have gotten ourselves in there, but he wants to get us out. Experience his comfort. Experience the peace that surpasses all understanding that Paul writes about in his letter to the Philippians. It doesn't mean the consequences are necessarily going to stop, but it means we can experience that divine comfort. And finally, comply. This is something we do, but something we need God's strength to do as well. Ask for God's strength to say no to temptation. Ask for his strength to walk in willing obedience in all that he has commanded. And experience the cheer as you rely on him to do just that. Be filled with the joy that comes with trusting in the Lord. Be filled with the joy that comes with serving him, no matter who is watching. Experience the joy that comes with saying no to temptation. We serve a loving and correcting God. That's part of his love, is that he corrects us. He will discipline us because he loves us. He's one who forgives and rescues, but he's one who desires our hearts, our lives, our obedience. Yet when we fail, as we all will time and time again, he responds with an amazing grace, a grace to forgive us. And it's because of what we talked about a few minutes ago, that he sent his son who died on our behalf, the one who lived a perfect life, who didn't need forgiving of sins, and died on our behalf so that we can be forgiving. He demonstrated his amazing grace most fully in the giving of his son, who died so we can be forgiven. We're going to sing in just a moment. We're going to sing about that amazing grace that Christ has shown to us, that God has shown us, the faithful, forgiving God. As we sing, be reminded of these truths, friends that when we confess, when we call and comply, we can experience contentment, 
comfort and cheer. Let's turn to God. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more sermons, blogs, and other resources, you can check out our website, oakridgebiblechapel.org. To listen to our weekly podcast, Word Processing, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform. Remember, you can always join us in person or on our live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Thanks for watching.